welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads episode 22. I am your host, Dharma Dhar- Kirti, joined as always by my friends, the Right Wing Dharma Squad. <laughs> Hello, this is Aura. This is Kagyu. SK. And today we are discussing uh, something that is very important. It's, I guess, um, I, I, I don't know how quote unquote right wing it is. I mean, I, I, I guess one of the kind of like framing things for this is I do think that um, to the extent that in, in as I'm increasingly thinking about it, what it means to be right wing is essentially to be in contact with reality at some level. And and really, at, a, at you know, certainly as as things have shaken out, what it means to be left wing is to prefer your kind of conceptual illusions over reality, or to insist that you know because you think things ought to be a certain way, or because you have a certain idea in your mind that that is going to be the way things are, and you know, reality be damned. <laughs> um, so maybe at that kind of like very abstract level, um, we could say. Sorry, yes. It's almost like the political persuasions break down into a preference because, you know, reality has it has a constructed aspect to it, right? We call it conventional reality. And then you have the actual manifest reality. So it's almost like the political persuasions break down into do you prefer the reality and do you emphasize that or do you emphasize the constructed aspect? And I think the thing that makes this particular way of thinking right wing is that the way that duality breaks down is a certain way. It doesn't break down into just anything. It breaks down the way Nagarjuna lays it out. So the fact that that's how it is, it, it makes it right wing for me. I'm glad you brought this up, Dharmakirti, because um, you know, in just a few moments, we're going to be diving into some pretty heady philosophical stuff. And um, I think it is good to address this question from time to time on the show, because you know, what, the way I look at it, I, I I look at it the same way you do, which is that um, it, my, my my politics are not, I don't care about left or right, you know, I just want to be, want to hew to reality as best I can. I want my understanding of the world to match up with the way the world really is. And to the degree that I am successful in that, people, I'm told, well, that's the, the, the views that you think. And so be it. You can call me that if you want. Um, that's fine. I don't really care one way or the other what what label is attached to it but what's important is that um yeah that we deal with the way things actually are um and try to move from there i mean from my perspective i think right wing versus left wing is if with right wing politics really it's because your politics are coming from some kind of higher or more important source it's they're a downstream effect of something else whereas with left wing it often seems like that's the exact opposite Sorry, what's, what? Yeah, we say more, please. No, it's it, it's like, so for instance, with the with the left wing politic political kind of concept, you, any kind of left wing politics, you basically start from the polit- political. You start from some kind of thing like, um, yeah, you know, we should have absolute equality, and then you construct your reality around this political principle. Right. That that's what right I was get, politics, getting at. It's, it's yeah. exactly the opposite. We have it's some kind, kind of, of higher set of principles, and then the political political stances just flow from these higher principles it's the exact opposite approach well i wouldn't say that it's fun sorry go on uh, no go on go on it's kind of a fun house mirror kind of thing because you think of the right as being like authoritarian and top down um when 
when it really it arrives to its conclusions by building up off of reality and the left wing is kind of top down because it like totalitarianly tries to bend reality to its preconceived ideals right no it's like okay we can observe for instance that authority is generally a better way of solving problems and so therefore right-wing politics can tend towards some kind yeah. of I didn't mean to de- derail and completely on yeah. this I just wanted to sort of highlight you know um, for, for I don't know you know exactly who our audience is necessarily this is going to be a, a Buddhism heavy and a philosophy heavy uh, maybe exclusively so episode and, and couple of episodes because this text is very dense and it's it's not actually that long just kind of on the written page but you know you, you could spend a lifetime um, I mean people have and, and, and in a sense I mean this is sort of you know how I frame it how I think about it this is really the the core in a certain from a certain kind of perspective of the Mahayana um as I mentioned before but maybe for new listeners and also just as a reminder um one of the kind of central defining features of Mahayana Buddhism of great vehicle Buddhism is the perfection of wisdom literature um you know which started appearing uh, about 2000 years ago about 4 or 500 years somewhere in there after the the um buddha's passing into parinirvana and um this text is really the um how to say the consolidation or the kind of definitive explanation of what is going on in the perfection of wisdom literature uh, which sort of in in the oral, tra- oral tradition, it's kind of you know maintained that actually Nagarjuna himself brought um, from this non-human realm of the Nagas, the serpent people, um, who live in the you know <clears throat> in this in this kind of parallel reality and, and often um, hang out in, in um, like caves and underground places and rivers and bodies of water and so on. But anyway, the point is, um, the reason I was harping on this thing about reality is because. Um, it's first of all, that's really in in a, in a sense the main topic of the text um, is you know when, when we're talking about reality or thinking about reality, the nature of reality. What what is it that we're actually talking about? And when we um, a lot of the argumentation, a lot of the um, what he's trying to get at or the way he's getting at it is is showing how our kind of everyday concepts um are are sort of every way you know we we go around the world we we think in certain ways we talk in certain ways and even in at the level of um you know phenomenology in terms of how we sort of have a you know just a constructed experience of of the world of reality um i I would even go so far as to say i mean i you know i I, uh, i'm not an expert on this but uh I understand there's there's quite a bit of cognitive science research to the effect that um, like if you check out what is it uh, metaphors we live by by George Lakoff and I forget is Mark Johnson, um, you know that that there is like a neuroanatomic basis for a lot of this stuff uh, in terms of you know when, when when we interact with a jug we think of it as like a single discrete concrete entity that's existing out there and and that that's kind of at some level how our um how our brains are wired um in a very physical way nevertheless it, um the the you know even though we're talking at a certain level of, so I, I, the, the reason i say that is because it, it's important not to think not to not to think that this is just a matter of like you know if i change my thoughts that um that, that everything's going to 
you know, instantly get better and I'll be enlightened. Like now I've gotten enlightened. It doesn't, doesn't quite work that way. You know, these things are very deeply karmically ingrained in our, in our streams of being. Um, but the point is that, you know, this way that we go about our lives, this way that we interact with the world, um, is so structured by certain foundational kinds of concepts and metaphors and, and, and things like, you know, causes and, and effects, which is the main topic of the first chapter or, um, uh, in the second chapter is talking about motion, most specifically about this idea of going. But it's in in certain ways, and we'll get there. It's um, it's it's really an an analysis of what does it mean to say that somebody does something. What does it mean to say that there's a person who's doing a thing and a thing that is done? And how what is the relationship between these things? How are we supposed to understand these things? On the surface, of course, there's no problem. And and, and in a certain level, this is why, you know, Nagarjuna kind of famously um, introduced this distinction or, or popularized in a certain way this distinction between what, what he called the ultimate and the relative truth. Um, you know, and then the relative truth or, you know, conventional reality is, yeah, it's a world of, you know, jugs and sticks and and people going places, then there's no problem with that. The, the question is, what happens when you analyze that? What happens when you when you see the nature of that? And um, he says in the in the introductory verse, the sort of salutation that's the first um, that's the like the 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 very first thing that ha- the, 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 the the very first verse. I don't know how to say like, like this, these the things. Dedication? The dedication, so to speak. Yeah, he says, I salute. This is in the translation um, from from Sideritz and and Katsura. He says, uh, I salute the fully enlightened one, the best of orators, who taught the doctrine of dependent origination, according to which there is neither cessation nor origination, neither annihilation nor the eternal, neither singularity nor plurality, neither the coming nor the going of any phenomenon, any dharma, for the purpose of nirvana, which is characterized by the auspicious cessation of what he calls a uh, uh, hypostatization, which is a fancy word for saying like reification or, or making something into like a thing in your mind. The, 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 the word in the Sanskrit is um, prapancha upashamam, um, which is like in, in a very literal sense, like prapancha is, is sometimes translated as like proliferation. It kind of, it can mean a bunch of different things, but the idea is that there's all this stuff going on in your mind. And, and what happens is, as a result of the Buddha's teaching, that this is um, upashama, which is like pacified, you could say, or like brought to, brought to heal, stopped. Um, and this is shivam, which is like the same word as like the god shiva. It means like good or great or glorious. Um, and so this is like the point is we have all this stuff going on in our mind. We tell all these stories. We have all these ideas about, you know, and, 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 and even in a kind of non-conceptual sense, we have like this structure that we engage in, in our everyday activity. And as everyday activity, as just kind of doing stuff, it's not a problem necessarily. But when, but the point is that, you know, we have to, we have to analyze it. We have to understand what's really going on. And when we do that, when we do that in, 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 you know, correctly, that is what brings all of this conceptual activity to an end. Um, so yeah, that that's um, I guess how I wanted to, what I wanted to say first. I have some groundwork stuff, just please, because so, I know a lot of people are probably not not familiar with this at all. Um, so just a couple of introductory notes. So it's interesting that the dedication has what we call pairwise denials. So that's four sets of two things that are denied. And uh, Chandra Kirti argues in the, and DK, you have to correct my pronunciations on this, that Pranasampada 
that the it's actually the dedicatory verse um, that gives us the reasoning behind the Prasangika reading, which is the reading that we're that we're coming from. Um, that that I don't want to get into Prasangika. It's the, this is like a very complicated. It doesn't actually even matter. Yeah, but but yeah, like the dedicatory verse is important for how we re read the rest yeah. of the text, right? Um, and so this text is is based around the incoherence and utility of the concept of essences. So what is an essence, right? If something has an essence, it has an immutable, indivisible core that does not depend on anything. It cannot be subdivided, right? So we, one way to explain that is to say it exists from its own side. So if you take the classic example of a table, that means the entity of the table has some irreducible core that exists from its own side, totally independent of anything else. And that's the basic concept, uh, attacking that concept as incoherent in all these different ways is what this text is based on. Uh, there are some fundamental tensions in this text, and if you keep them in mind, um, it'll help with your reading and it'll help you understand. So the, the fundamental tensions and really the tension inside all philosophical investigation is, is the desire to characterize the ultimate nature of things. But that's got to go alongside with the recognition that all characterization is going to end up being conventional, right? Meaning it's not going to reach into the ultimate. So this text is kind of like a tightrope walk at the very limit of language and metaphysics. Uh, so I think that's an my... excellent. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. Um, the 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 key, I guess, also like something else to keep in mind, because um, you said tightrope, and I think that's a, that's really. It's it, uh, like you know, like this razor's this razor blade, right? Or like you're on this balanced on this this knife edge. That's kind of useful in a certain way to think about, um, particularly when you know he he calls it this is the the middle way, you know, and 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 in the pre-existing Buddhist tradition before this text appeared, middle way had a certain kind of um, almost, it had a very practical meaning. It had a very, moral, um, right? yeah, moral kind of meaning of like, you know, well, you don't, you want to avoid extremes in the sense of, you know, you know, you don't want to eat too much. You don't want to be a glutton, but you also don't want to starve yourself to death. Right. Um, you know, everything in moderation, like the, like the Greeks said. So, um, there's that kind of a sense of what it means to be middle way. Now, obviously, where that middle point is can differ. You know, it depends to some extent and is open to debate. But the point is that that's sort of what it meant prior to this. Now, when he said when he says there are there's there's no origination and there's no cessation. Like clearly, there's no middle point between origination and he's not saying like well in in between origination and cessation um that's where stuff is like if you really want to i guess you could kind of think of things that way but um that's not really i don't think that's very helpful and i don't think that's very accurate because the point isn't that we're like he doesn't say you know well the real middle way is like something between existence and non-existence he says no there's no existence there's no non-existence there's no both things aren't both existent and non-existent and things aren't neither non-existent nor existent that's not that's called the that's called the tetralemma tetralemma that's right and and this is something that um content oh sorry contemporary um contem some contemporary philosophers i think most famously jacques derrida kind of also stumbled into um 
he's not alone. Um, you know, and, and Nagarjuna is not alone. This is something that I think when when you're thinking about things a certain way, and when you're having these, when you're when you're really kind of contemplating the deep structure of reality, that that coming to some kind of realization along these lines is inevitable. I would say. Um, yeah, and Heidegger is someone who, yeah, Heidegger definitely in a yeah. different way kind of got close to this. Now, I would say that the middle way here, and this is not to be taken literally, right? This is a heuristic for a way to you think about this, right? The middle way here, it's in the razor's edge. It's about not falling into reification on one side, which means thinking of things in essences, and not falling into nihilism or annihilation on the other side, which means denying the conventional existence of things, right? The coffee mug on, on my table is not real as a coffee mug, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist at all. So we're in the we're in the middle between reification and annihilation, right? That generally. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, and and just so maybe we should all, so that's a good place to start because uh, in the very first verse, um, he says, "Not from itself, not from another, not from both, nor without cause. Never in any way is there any existing thing that has arisen." Um, and and yeah, the the kind of the the, the fundamental. So again, this is one of those cases where it's like if you're if you're hearing this for the first time, or you're you're not a Buddhist, or or you haven't had any kind of experience with any of this stuff, it's like what the fuck is this guy even talking about? Like obviously <laughs> stuff exists and comes from other stuff. Like shut the fuck up. Um, but <laughs> like it, it, it you okay? Well let's let's it drill. Exists, it doesn't exist. From its own side, right? This is not about whether or not something exists necessarily. I, I don't agree with that interpretation. Now you're doing the, the Prasangika Gayluk thing and I don't like it. <laughs> from its mean? own from its own from its own side as a as a term is like that's how that's how certain Tibetan people talk about it. That's not um okay. it doesn't well, it doesn't I mean, really matter. I'm just I'm 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 being okay. I'm being okay. a stick in the mud. Um but it's it's fine. I just yeah. think it's a useful phrase, but yeah, yeah it, it's we'll not avoid it, that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. It, it, the, the, the point is that uh, when you're talking about things, like, wh what is it, first of all, fundamentally, that you're talking about as existing? Um, this text and this whole way of analyzing things is, is kind of a, a, you could say, a second layer or even in some ways a, yeah, let's say a second layer on top of a kind of pre-existing pre analysis. So in terms of, like, the... Um, the Buddhist tradition, but also just in terms at a certain level of like kind of common sense. And I talked about this a little bit last week with the particles. Um, you know, reality is you, you divisible into particles at a certain level. Like you, you know, you, you're talking about it. You think a jug. You look at the jug. You can you can use the jug. You can pour water in the jug. You can drink out of the jug. You can do stuff with it. That's fine. That's all at the level of like relative truth. You know how um, that's fine, but actually, when you're looking at the jug or you're thinking about the jug, what you're what you're what is the referent of this idea of a jug? What is what is it that you're really talking about? Now, when you're talking about like the essence that makes the thing really really what it is, um, like 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 uh, SK was talking about. Okay, well, where is the essence of the jug? Is it in the particles that make up? The jug, you know, does so does each individual particle of the jug have the essence of the jug? So if you take away one of the particles, does that particle have the essence of the jug still? In other words, th this idea of there being an essence is already 
problematic. And 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 Nagarjuna in this text is already starting from a position where he's talking to an audience that kind of already understands that when you're looking at a jug and you and you you've already analyzed it into its constituent components which in in the abhidharma tradition that this is coming out of would have been called dharmas which in, in for this usage basically dharma means like particle more or less um so the point is like we've already done the thing where we've broken down the jug and we've said well there are there is no real jug there there's no there's no such there's no jug there's just all these dharmas but for, and this is the crucial point from an Abhidharma perspective, and I would I would submit also. I mean, the the kind of the contemporary scientific framework, um, particularly when it comes to things like um, you know particles and this kind of level of reality in in certain ways, it, it it's very close in in a lot of ways to this Abhidharma perspective, where yeah, okay, the jug you know is a kind of like common effect of a bunch of particles working together and it's you know like there's stuff happening with the particles that are producing this thing in our minds and we can interact with it in a certain way but you know I don't I don't think if you ask a physicist like is a jug as real as the electrons etc that like make up the jug that they would say yes like clearly from a kind of contemporary scientific perspective the the particles are much are real in a way that the jug is not um, and that was also the the way that these these Buddhists at the time of Nagarjuna that he was talking to would have looked at these things. And so the question is, so when you're talking about like what what is an essence, like what what is it what what he's most directly talking about, um, I mean, you can also apply this analysis to the jug for sure. but but what he really what he's talking about is like, okay, when you when now that we've identified this, absolute rock bottom kind of fun, fundamental unit of, of of reality this this fundamental particle um okay well now that we've done that what um how does that work like what is going on with these particles and so when he's saying that a particle doesn't arise from itself um nor from another like that's the point here is is precisely well we'll get to that i i, I wanted to get, maybe i'll, I'll I, hold off on that for a second. i want to add a little context too Please. if i may yeah, yeah um so so why you know why is all this stuff important in buddhism like you know who cares right you know like particles and stuff like what's how is that a religion right well it comes from an extremely central teaching of buddhism um which is I think in this text, in this translation, they call it dependent origination. Another translation that I like is dependent co-arising. Um, that's the one Tanisaro Bhikkhu uses in translating the Pali, at least. Um, and this is a very central doctrine to Buddhism, and it has to do with the reification of the, uh, the, the illusory reification of the self from which suffering comes. So the reason that these Abhidharma guys and later people like Nagarjuna Nagarjuna are so interested in debating these things um, is not just because it's kind of cool and interesting to think about like is a coffee cup really a coffee cup it's because it ultimately comes from the Buddha's discussion of is a self really a self and dependent we don't really have time and I, frankly I don't have the understanding to give like a long exegesis of uh, you know pre-Mahayana um, thoughts about dependent co-arising but it's accurate you guys correct me if i'm wrong but i think it's accurate to say that it it's the very existence of this teaching and the the ideas that the abhidharma guys had about exactly what is the buddha talking about that led to this even being a topic of discussion 
for people like Nagarjuna and and people who studied him in the first the, place. Well, the, the, my please uh, go. Yeah. My understanding of the Abhidharma tradition was they actually did not realize that, say, composite entities like chariots or the self were totally just conceptual constructs. They were, however, arguing that the individual dharmas, which were these absolutely simple components of existence, did have some real existence, intrinsic existence to themselves. So like a, a particular, I guess, like for instance, like a particular color or a particle might have like a real existence, but the composites like the chariot or the self were just, com were just these conceptual constructs built of these actual dharmas at least yeah that's that, more that's right and 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 the kind of the underlying thing here which which again it, it's it, it it it's not even a question of like um how to say there's just we're starting from a very different worldview very different premises from something like christianity or, or the other abrahamic religions um where you're kind of starting from this premise of you know there is a God and God has certain is a certain way and you know I mean I think it ends up in in a similar place but um, fundamentally the idea animating Buddhism really is you know it's it's not that there is a God or there isn't a God um, although the Buddhism is is in a sense you could say atheistic um, but it's it's that. Uh, reality is a certain way and we can't see it we we have this problem where we're ignorant that's and, right and, and and because we're ignorant we suffer and yes. so the only way that you can fix suffering fundamentally is by fixing the problem of being ignorant and so there's this really strong overlap even maybe in a sense an identity between seeing reality the way that it really is and being free being free from suffering, That's... being free from you know all of the kind of problems that come along with ordinary conditioned existence. So when we're when the, the reason or like the kind of underlying motivation why like there's all this debate about like atoms, as I think you exactly said like how is this religious? Well, it's religious in the sense that as a religion, Buddhism like is very deeply concerned about you know how are things really in reality, and if you know if reality is such that there are really particles and they really exist in a certain way then that has certain consequences um but if i, I want to yeah go i want to, to yes. i want to read actually if i may yeah. again this is um yeah definitely th this is from a sutra on dependent co-arising which is the um mahanidana sutta um and this so it's very long i'm not going to read the whole sutta um, but I like the beginning, and I'm, I'm just going to read the very beginning and the very end, to, again, to put this context in sort of a yeah religious framework. Uh, I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was living among the Kurus. Now, uh, I'll skip the rest of the introduction. Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One, and for our listeners, this is like his, his chief disciple, sort of his greatest disciple approached the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, It's amazing, Lord. It's astounding how deep this dependent co-arising is and how deep its appearance. And yet to me, it seems as clear as clear can be. The Buddha said, Don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. Deep is this dependent co-arising and deep its appearance. It's because of not understanding and not penetrating this Dhamma 
that this generation is like a tangled skein, a knotted ball of string, like matted rushes and reeds, and does not go beyond transmigration, beyond the plains of deprivation, woe, and bad destinations. And then he explains dependent co-arising at length. I will skip to the end. And he says, now when a monk attains these eight emancipations in forward order, in reverse order, in forward and reverse order, when he attains them and emerges from them wherever he wants, however he wants, and for as long as he wants, when through the ending of mental fermentations, he enters and remains in the fermentation free awareness release and discernment release, having directly known it and realized it in the here and now, he is said to be a monk released in both ways. And as for another release in both ways, higher or more sublime than this, there is none. So that's what we're doing when we're analyzing these Beautiful. things. Beautiful. We're, we're untangling schemes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Untangling is a good, untangling schemes is a great way to think of when I was talking about like the bringing proliferation to a heel. I mean, that's fundamentally what we're, what we're talking about. Um, and, and in fact, not just that, but the, this the, really what, what this, um, what Nagarjuna is doing at a kind of most fundamental level, so to speak, or, or kind of like the, 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 the thing he's bouncing off of is this discussion of dependent origination. Like, because this is, again, absolutely, you know, the, we've discussed this a little bit before, but, but again, just, you know, it's always good to go over. Buddhism is all about causes and effects. I mean, this is really fundamental and foundational. And the, the idea is that, you know, we suffer because we have the causes to suffer, but when we remove those causes of suffering, which are basically the defilements within ourselves, um, then we don't suffer anymore. When we remove the causes, the effect doesn't arise. And when you have the causes, the effect arises. That's really the essence of dependent origination. And, and so Nagarjuna is starting from this place of saying like, well, what is it, you know, actually nothing arises. And so you you, you got to kind of put yourself in the mind. I mean, like, don't think that if this sounds weird to you or like, what the fuck is he even talking about? Um, that that your reaction is necess necessarily different from the reaction of you know a monk in India two thousand years ago. Um, the reaction almost certainly would have been you know what wh what. <laughs> um, but but the question is sort of like okay, well, why is why is he saying this? What does he mean? And, you know, maybe it doesn't mean anything. Maybe people are just, you know, I don't know, stupid or, or have the wool pull over our eyes somehow. But I, I find this text very profound. And I, I think if we continue to discuss it, that maybe you'll come to that uh, opinion as well. It's important to realize that this is first and foremost a soteriological text. It, it's a philosophical text second, in my opinion, because the whole point of doing the philosophy is to help you progress spiritually by releasing these misunderstandings and philosophical confusion, which cause you to suffer. This is, this may seem like a, um, you know, it may seem to some people to come from a different place than the Buddha's original teaching, but it's, it's one and the same. It's the exact same goal. All right. Should we get into the meat, into the text? Let's do it. So, so as we said, the first verse after the, homage is not from itself not from another not from both nor without cause never in any way is there any existing thing that has arisen so the the other kind of big picture thing here the, the something that's also very important and another kind of um important overlap between what's going on here and in the buddhist tradition and the contemporary scientific perspective is the idea or the understanding i should say that 
reality reality is momentary that all that exists is the only thing that exists and actually he's going to problematize ultimately even this um but from a kind of baseline perspective when you're talking about you know what is it that exists what you're talking about is a present moment because you know for sort of famously or sort of you know very obviously things that are in the past no longer exist and things that are in the future quote unquote by definition also don't exist they don't exist yet because they they're in the future so so already we can sort of get this understanding that you know anything that's past is gone doesn't exist anything that's future by definition also doesn't exist so anything if there's anything if there's go- if there is a candidate for anything that's going to exist at any point it has to be the only thing possible is that it could could it would have to be something that exists in the present moment and of course you know again getting into things you know we can we can talk about you know like there's things like the plank time and these things get very complicated at a certain level but the the length of a moment is very 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 small again without getting any any more complicated well, than that yes please um i would say and i'm nargarjuna also makes this argument um that it doesn't really make any sense to speak of the present moment having any sort of duration whatsoever uh, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago because if the present moment has a duration then it also has a past and future so we're, we're not it, it contains within it a movement which is the past and the future yeah that, that's what this is a question i had yeah uh, so uh maybe dk maybe you can answer this i don't know um when we were talking about um uh particle physics and stuff you you had a great uh explanation of this sort of pre-mahayana uh concept of dharmas as you know discrete packets of existence or whatever you know and we were talking about physical stuff you know and we kind of compared them maybe to atoms now without getting don't correct me on that without getting too far into it what came into my question uh what came into my mind as a question when reading this is was there a similar concept for discrete packets of time in that in this sort of pre-mahayana Buddhist it's a it's tradition? a great question that's a great question and the short answer is no the the idea was rather that um i think it was there's different metaphors but it was like like a 64th of a lightning of the time it takes for for lightning to strike or like or like some like you know 1488th of a of an eye blink um it, it, they they sort of they use they use i if i recall correctly they use like fractions of an eye blink or fractions of a of a lightning flash to describe like how long how long an instant is but they don't that it, it's not like there are no like time particles so to speak which i don't think there are like time is an emer- in in contemporary stuff um, time is an emergent property in any case. So it, it, it also lines up in that way, in other words. Okay, that's interesting. I, I, yeah. Interesting aside. Um, but anyway, um, to, to get back to, to Storm's point, yeah, that's definitely one of the places that he goes. Is like when you, well, if the future doesn't exist and the past doesn't exist and the present is supposed to be instantaneous, but it actually doesn't even have any duration, like how could the present exist? But that, that comes later. That comes later. I just wanted to, I just wanted to highlight, you know, sort of at the beginning. So, so the point is in terms of the analysis of causality, when he says that things, um, things don't exist, or this is where he really, where the kind of the, one of the main points or the bottom lines of this very, you know, crucially important first chapter um let me skip ahead a bit just to just to sort of continue this thought in the fifth verse he says 
They are said to be conditions when something arises dependent on them. When something has not arisen, why, then, are they not non-conditions? In other words, if you're looking at things in terms of an individual moment, an instantaneous moment, at that individual instantaneous moment, you, you, you want to say, people want to say, like, okay, well, there's some number of causes that produce the effect that, that is happening in the present moment. Okay, but by definition, whatever it was that caused that thing at the present moment that's existing right now no longer exists. At the, at the moment that the effect exists, the cause has already executed its function. It doesn't, it's not doing anything. So what exactly, what precisely? Because again, we can sort of appeal to certain common sense notions, and that's fine. But if you really want to get down to brass tacks, if you really want to analyze, like, okay, well, in terms of like things that we can really be solid and certain and, and have a really established sense of really existing, okay, well, what, re what really exists, let's say kind of for argument's sake, what really exists are these particles, indivisible particles in the present moment. Okay, well, when you're talking about individual, in, individual indivisible particles in the, in the present moment, however it is that they came to be doing whatever it is that they're supposed to be doing in that present moment, they're no longer connected. They can, by definition, no longer be connected to whatever it is that's supposed to have been responsible for them being that way in the past. So how, how can you, like ontologically, how can you really, in, in a very kind of deep way, how can you distinguish between the things that are causally responsible for the, uh, the present state of affairs and things that aren't responsible, so, so, so to speak, for the present, present, present state of affairs. You can't. Some of the subtext of what's being said in verse 5 is, is that it, it's the appearance of regularity that we observe that gives causes and conditions their explanatory power. It's not, it's not some truth being extrapolated from ultimate reality, right? It's, it's it kind of working backwards. The incoherent explain it you know the the like i said it, it, if you add essences to this and talk about causes that have um being a cause inherently in their nature all of this breaks down so i think like one of the the points of verse five i have in my notes is that it's it's the conventional appearance of regularity that sort of gives any explanatory power to conditions and causes one thing i found helpful when reading this is um sort of imagining Nagarjuna at the end of his, one of his points. So for our listeners, the the it's composed of um, you know short verses of like fourteen stanzas at least in the I think in the first chapter. Is that correct? Well, it's not it's not super important. Sorry, is what correct? Uh, fourteen stanzas in the first um, I think... first chapter. Yeah. yeah, that's right. It's fourteen. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you know, some some small number of of stanzas where he said, you know, he's basically making making an assertion, and then ask, and then sometimes he has like an interlocutor sort of give uh, a kind of standard Buddhist response to the question he's raising, and then he breaks that one down as well, and so it says, aha, well, if you think that, then what about this? And he sort of goes through it uh, bit by bit like that, and the the text that we're reading. Um, at least uh, I have the Siddharits too, Dharmakirti, um, is surrounded by all kinds of sort of explanation that's taken from 
um, not just a close reading of the text itself, but also of various commentaries that have been, were made um, in olden times. So anyway, sometimes you get, you get, I got a little bogged down in some of these very complicated arguments. And what I found helpful is I sort of imagine Nagarjuna standing there and watching you read. And then he's like, after you get one of his points, he's like, so then what are you going to do? Right. Like that's sort of the point. The point is like each individual one of these assertions and arguments he's making is, well, at least for me, it's not that it's so important in and of itself. It's that once you follow the logic, then the question is like, so now what are you going to do? Like he keeps he, he keeps he, he's basically breaking down all the like Storm was saying, like all these concepts and reifications you have about the way reality works and each individual one i mean they're very important don't get me wrong but each individual one is not the point itself it's that he's leaving you without anything else to stand on with these with these concepts do you guys that's agree? exactly right that's Which exactly interestingly, right yeah. exactly what your master does when you studies in this is like a uh, and it's also interesting that this is set up as a dialogue right because to me this is and and i have a weird opinion on this i don't think there's too many people that are really into golden age chan and Madhyamaka. um but it's cool because both things are are kind of like a dialogue and both things just as aura said uh involve the rug being swept out from under all of your assumptions right and the goal as is that you see into yourself nature and become a buddha at some point right and this is to help you do that that's so buddha hipster there buddhism it's, hipster it's, there it's beautiful not many people are into these things yeah. well i mean I'm I'm teasing on, you, I... brother. I'm, I'm teasing you, man. Come on, come on, come on. Yeah, I mean, I have no, some you're right tendencies. though. I'll admit them. You were right though. You're absolutely right. Uh, and while we're still on verse one, he kind of talks about a different, a couple different um, ideas of causation, and rejects them. So he's got self-causation, which is, is basically the idea that the effect must exist as a genuine potential in the cause. Okay. Then he talks about other causation which is that causes and effects are generally distinct, so they have separate essences, but they're related in a relationship or production, so that you can think of that as parents and their children. Then there's the idea of both causation, which is there's a necessary cause of a thing in uh, the thing in itself and potential, and then there are other causes that you need, but it will never obtain without the necessary cause, right? So you can't water uh, a potato seed and grow a dandelion it has to be a dandelion seed so there's there's one cause that has the genuine possession of the effect as a potential and then there's these other causes too and then there's also the, the idea of no causation which is i mean absurd on its face and funny because if there were no causation there would be no order to anything right things would appear randomly yeah so so we're there again there's this 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 issue of this knife edge i mean this is again if you want to think about you know madhyamaka how do you or the middle way how do you because clearly there are there is such a thing as causal regularity he's not denying that he's very pointedly not denying that it's actually very important for like the kind of overall buddhist project is that you know there is a certain kind of causal regularity the question is how do we understand its nature? How do we, what's really going on? And I think, you know, Storm kind of has, has alluded to this at various points. Sorry, did somebody want to say something? Actually, I mean, please. It, it almost seems like the point I'm getting from this, I'm not sure if I'm correct, but that ca there is some causal regularity, but the causes themselves are somewhat indeterminate and not really <laughs> easy to... It, well, it's the question is really, how do you delimit? How do you, like, what are you really talking about when you're um, saying, you know, phenomenon X or dharma x you know 
causes dharma why or phenomenon like this thing causes that thing right in this kind of because the, the whole the whole point here is when you like okay well what would that mean so so one answer and this would be sort of like i mean this is where we're getting with the um stuff about particles and the stuff about in essences that storm was kind of alluding to what would it mean to say that you have a phenomenon a a dharma right that its true nature its real essence was to produce a certain effect so like to step back for a second we're talking about an indivisible fundamental unit of reality that really ultimately truly is like a certain way it really truly ultimately has certain properties okay changeably so well how could it change is the fundamental question here like right. w how could something that really truly fundamentally existed in a certain way with a certain real essence like it, it, it by nature definitely was a certain way like if that could change and, and we'll get the, I mean, this happens later, I think, in the fifth chapter, if I recall correctly. I haven't looked at this stuff in, in a long time. But, um, you know, he gets into this in more detail. But, but again, this is part of what's going on here is when, like, what would it mean for something with a real nature to change? Like, you, you can either say that something has a real essential true nature or that it, like, changes somehow. You, you can't say that, that both obtain. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, the positive project here is to have a a functioning causal power without without essences right so we're gonna you know it we're gonna have causality function without any of the problems that you get from self essences right like it's like you were saying earlier if something has as its nature to be a cause right so if the the match is the cause of fire by its nature it can't be anything else then all matches would everywhere all the time be causing fire and you can't say, well, hold on, the match has a self-essence, and that essence is to be a match, but the part of it that causes fire doesn't have a self-essence. At that point, you've split off the part of the cause. You don't have a cause with an essence. You have a call, You have a, a, a thing with an essence, and the causal part is just related to it, right? But when you create that relation, you're, you're destroying the essence, right? So you can't have something with parts that's an essence. And that's what's taken apart right here. Was that too much? <laughs> it's it's difficult for me to talk about it. Um, you know, this is pretty complex, but as, you know, the central point is is if it's a cause by its essential nature, it it's going to cause all the time. It's not it it can't depend on something to say. Uh, well, in this situation, it's a cause, and this one, it's not. It's the, always a cause. The, the real question is sort of, and this is again, this is another way, another angle um, that we we can examine the, this first chapter, which uh, I think Aura, you was you were you're definitely picking up on the method here or a very important part of the method, which is you know, he's constantly kind of pushing. He's constantly saying like, because the, basically the opponent, I mean, it's not just necessarily just one opponent, um, particularly as you move through the text, but you can, you can always sort of reliably think that like, you know, he, he's trying to explain, the, the, it's us at a certain level. I mean, it's, you know, you and me and, and whoever, you know, people, ordinary people who like are used to think, thinking of things as just kind of being a certain way. And, you know, we have this kind of common sense perspective that, you know, stuff exists, things are real and, you know, causes have effects in a kind of straightforward way. He's like, okay, well, if that were true, what, what else would have to be true? Or, you know, okay, well now you're coming you know, and so you, you know, someone has to posit this kind of, 
um, explanation of like, well, you know, in order to account for the relationship between causes and effects, um, you have to, you know, we, we, maybe we could say like, well, there are some causes, you know, that you have, you have like causes, but you also have conditions. It's like, okay, well now what's the difference between a cause and a condition, you know? And like, you're talking, you're still talking about all this stuff influencing, um, the, the production of something in the present moment. And by the way, no matter whether you're talking about causes or conditions or whatever kind of conditions, uh, you know, all of that stuff is in the past. It hasn't, it doesn't even affect the present by definition. So there's all these kind of like, he keeps coming at things from, from all these different angles. And and one of the most fundamental angles is it precisely this question of like, what does it mean or what would it mean for something to depend on something else? This is really crucial. This is really one of the like main, you know, kind of highlight, bold, underline main points is when you're talking about things that depend on other things, in a sense, you've already given up the whole game because you're no longer talking about things that are really real in and of themselves. Like, you know, you know like, and, and that's kind of the main target of the whole tech. I mean, if you take nothing else from this away, understand that the fact that things depend on other things means that there is nothing, no phenomenon ever that is really, truly its own thing. Everything is dependent, interdependent. Everything is interrelated. And so to say that like, you want to say like, oh, well, this is a cause and this isn't a cause or this, you know, you know, in other words, when you're this whole point of this analysis, or one of the points of this analysis of, you know, how can you even distinguish supposed conditions from non-conditions is to say like, well, you can't really because everything is is constantly influencing everything else in the entire multiverse. There is no, you know, every atom, this is the 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 uh, allegory of what's called Indra's jeweled net. You know, every every particle, if you want to like talk about particles, every particle is a reflection of every other particle fractally throughout the entire multiverse, throughout all of samsara. So to say like, well, this particle is a cause of this part of that other particle, but this other part, this third particle doesn't influence this other particle at all. Like, it, it just doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. So throughout this whole thing, just here's a heuristic for you to keep in mind. You can either have something that is reified with an essence, or you can have something that depends on something else. Those two things can never go together. By definition, essences are independent. So that's something that can guide you through this text if you just keep that in mind. You might even say, like, things don't exist um, from their own side. Where he gets really radical um, <laughs> is, is uh, sure. in, chapter, in chapter two, um, just to jump ahead a little bit, like, it's, um, there's some familiar argumentation, and even the commentary mentions Zeno, like we brought up Zeno before, and we can get into that. And it's actually, on one level, for me, it was actually quite easy to follow chapter two, but the implications, like, <laughs> the very end sentence, uh, let's see if I can pull it up here, um, is, so he's talking about, he's talking about uh, movement, essentially, and he's talking about, is the act of, is the goer and the act of going, are they distinct? And when we say that something is moving, how, you know, is it, it can't be moving over the path that it's already moved over and it can't be moving over the path that's yet to move over. So is it moving in the present? What does that mean? And ultimately says, no, not that either. Although the argument is more complicated, but at the, the very, um, <laughs> the uh, line 25 of this, which is the final line is, 
one who is both real and unreal excuse me one who is a both real and unreal goer does not perform a going of any of the three kinds thus there is no going no goer and no destination which is essentially saying there is no such thing as movement um and it's funny because you know as he's making his arguments along the way i won't pretend to have total clarity on them but i was like okay and I can see that point and I can see that point too. And he reaches the conclusion. I'm like, wait a minute, that's, you know, that's, how can you say that there's no such thing as going? Um, but he kind of proves that there isn't. And that, that's an example of this kind of radical reshaping of, of how we can even look at any phenomenon. He's going to end up denying a bunch of stuff that we actually see all the time. And the way that you rescue all this stuff is that we find over and over again that it's actually not movement that's the problem or the going or the goer it's thinking of them as having essences that's the problem right right so you guys want to go to verse two well yeah i mean the well we, we, we again there i would say that like in the second in terms of the second chapter which is um in a lot of i mean this is uh again in a sense, most of the meaning of the text is kind of packed into this, and it's very dense. And, and of course, um, or you're not alone. Um, in, in, it can be mystifying. Um, but but I, I think there's there's at a certain level there's really like two main things that are going on. Number one is um, structurally the same way that we were talking before about time. Like the the time thing here is really important, and that's kind of. Um, fundamental to the analysis. So, so what are you talking about? What is one talking about when one says, you know, like there is motion, there is going. The idea of going requires duration, requires there to be like some period of time where position changes. I mean, even if you want to be like in terms of algebra or physics or whatever, like literally, you know, it's distance divided by time is velocity, right? So like uh, when you're talking about motion, you're talking about a, a divisible quantity of time over which things are happening. The problem is, as we've already discussed, that that doesn't, when you're, when you're, when you're analyzing the deep structure, the true nature of reality, like what, how does that even first of all like how does that even make sense because there is no past and there is no future all there ever exists is this present moment so to speak so so in that present moment where is the going and and so like the, the right off the bat we're struck by this thing of like okay well you know he's we're already caught in this trap of like we have to try to say that there is some kind of going that is happening in this present moment um, even though there's no duration. And that's why like, mo like it, it, it's a little bit um, confusing and it, and it proceeds on the basis of Sanskrit grammar in ways that I, I just won't go into here because I bore everybody to tears and lose <laughs> the entirety of the audience. But um, the, the, the basic point is it's when, when, when you're trying to say that, that there's going happening in, a, in an instantaneous present moment, where is that going and and so what you're trying to say with like what, what the opponent keeps trying to do in this verse so uh let me see if i can find pull up um where is this 
if the this is verse five of the second chapter, if the act of going is in the path that is presently being traversed, then two acts of going would follow. That by which the path presently being traversed is said to be the path that's presently being traversed, and that which supposedly exists in the act of going. So, in other words, we have this like idea in our minds, right? That like there is a thing is there is a going, and and the going, the motion, is something different from the path and the person who's going. But but in order to like make that make any sense, then there would have to be you would have to be able to distinguish between okay, well, what makes the path, the thing that's, the, the, the place that you're going is the going. But then if the going is the thing that makes the path the going, then, then like, how could they be separate? I don't know if I'm making sense. The, 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 the problem is you can't really separate these things. The problem is like what makes the path the path is the fact that there's motion happening. But once there's motion, if, if there's motion happening, then this whole relation between the person who's on the path and the path and this supposed motion that we think we can, because we can like conceptually in our minds to use to go as a verb, we think that there is such a thing as like this abstract quality of motion. There is no abstract quality of motion. There is no essence of motion. And the, the, if there were, it, it would, it, you know, you would either, you, you would have to exist in like both the path and the goer, the person who's going simultaneously. In reality, what there is, is there is a stream of cause and effect. There is a stream of like, there's the, there's the particles that comprise the person who's going. There's the particles that comprise the path. These are changing in every moment in certain ways that allow us to create this designation of, of going. But it's just, it's all just this kind of very elaborate fantasy that we've constructed in our heads. It's a, it's a useful fantasy. It's a very helpful fiction. It, it, it's evolutionarily, you could take a look at, in terms of like evolutionary biology, you could say like it's even necessary. It, it's something that you know, helps us and enables us to survive. Um, but it's not real. It's, it's not a real. Side effect of, a side effect of object permanence. Yeah, it, very much so. Exactly. And that's the other thing, is when you talk about motion as displacement through time, well, what is time except a relative measure of yet another piece of motion. Here's some fraction of the orbit of the Earth around the Sun, and we're going to relate this form of motion to that form of motion. So really, it always references back to this perception of motion. It's, it's, it's not, it, it, there's no absolute time even, and this isn't something he actually mentions, but it's just something that came to mind. No, that that's exactly right. There's no this this whole again. The, the whole point is that we have these. You know, we, we think we can refer to. We think that you know because we can think of things a certain way because I can like use the verb to go and construct you know various kind of you know um, grammatical forms of it that there is really such a thing as motion right as going. But but the whole point here is yeah like like however you want to slice it you can't you can't actually separate phenomena from each other and you can't isolate anything you can't really you know there's there's no point at which the analysis comes to rest on a single you know to posit the existence of these kind of indivisible fundamental units of reality you know it requires them would if if they were really real the way that we're, we 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 sort of 
the whole reason why we're, we're, we're positing, you know, particles or whatever as these fundamental units is we want to say like, okay, well, this is how reality really is. And, and, and this is how, you know, um, when I have my, this kind of ordinary intuition that stuff is just, uh, um, you know, I, I, there's no problem really fundamentally with my, the way I go about my daily life, um, you know, because things are more or less as they appear. And, and the whole point here is, well, well no, they, they can't be. And, and everything, this, all our kind of notions of um, anything, really. And because you could, you, could, you could put the point, one of the points here is you could say the same thing about stopping. And then he sort of proceeds along this analysis. But, you know, when does stopping start? When do you, who, who is the one that is stopping? And is there, is there an activity of stopping that is separate from the place where one has stopped? You, you know, when you, when you start looking at things this way, it's like, oh, like what are you even talking about and well, think and, about it this way like if you talk about stopping so if stopping is something that we can narrow down to being one thing and it's not dependent on the stopper then it would be possible for you to have stationary things that are sometimes in motion while remaining stationary you would sometimes have stopping without anything that stops when you when you reify those things you end up with a bunch of ridiculous contradictions right you end up incoherent and from a broader perspective, a broader philosophical perspective and a broader perspective within Buddhism specifically, these kinds of uh, these kinds of arguments also, of course, apply to being born and to dying and things like that. I mean, the, the again, like I said, towards the beginning, uh, the reason for for understanding all this stuff is because we have, you know, we suffer because we don't see these things clearly because we are attached to our ideas about what's really happening in the world where where causes and effects come from and we don't see the nature of reality and as a result uh we're deeply fucked up that's right i i would even i would even say i mean to kind of put this back in the sort of initial frame for the discussion it's the point is to kind of be, you know, like it should leave you like thunderstruck in a certain way. Like, like it should kind of have this effect. Like once you, you, you know, you, you, maybe you get exasperated or maybe you sort of have this moment of clarity where it's like, well, shit, I never, you know, it's like, I guess that's, I guess that's true. Or I never thought about it that way or I never like, you know, what am I even talking about when I think about all this stuff? And, and it's sort of, there's this moment. I think if it works properly or you have the kind of the right understanding, this was certainly my experience and I will defend it to the hilt but the point is you know you, you your mind like comes to rest in a certain way like you, you, there's a moment to some extent maybe not all the way maybe not entirely but there's this moment of clarity this moment of like you know of like giving up of exhaustion of you know you you for for one instant or or some you know instance you're no longer wrapped up in this kind of thing you're no longer trying to, um, in, in the Buddhist tradition, we often talk about um, like grasping, this idea of grasping. And, you know, this can be uh, misunderstood, but I think this is a really good way to think about or, or uh, what, what what's going on here is we, we like what he's really like the opponent, the rhetorical opponent that he's addressing is someone who's really grasping at the aside. They're, they're kind of, they want reality to be real. This is, this is a, one way of thinking about like this fundamental ignorance that I mentioned before is, you know, what is this ignorance consistent is, is thinking that, rea that the, the, the nature of reality is something that you can grasp onto. 
Um, and so we tell ourselves these increasingly elaborate stories to try to justify our mode of existence, which is to just sort of, you know, we, we, we um, when I'm looking at a jug, you know, I, I, I need that jug to be real so that it can hold the water that I need to drink to survive because I want to keep living because I'm attached to my, my continued existence. And so when you have this moment of insight, it's like, not only is the jug not real because the part, you know, it's only made of particles, but the particles themselves aren't real and the water isn't real and I'm not real and none of this is really real. It's like for a, for a second, you can rest. And that's the key. Well, and you know, you could describe this entire work as as the philosophical equivalent equivalent of you men smacking you in the face with a staff, right? We have that same moment of clarity. The way we were jarred out of our everyday awareness and grasping from being struck in the face with a wooden staff is a little bit like how some of these sections will leave you feeling. I don't see how see it could be different. Yeah, I don't see how different. it could be different. Yeah, it's not. One of the um and this stop me if i'm going too far afield here but um the concept of nirvana um gets translated poorly i believe as, as extinguishing because um and dk you can correct me on this but um because there's a lot of reference to like a fire going out but one thing that i read um that was really quite important for me in my my development as a buddhist is that in the ancient Indian philosophical view of the world, the fire and many other aspects of, of reality or whatever, but um, fire was viewed as something that that sort of existed in a kind of like an either state, um, sort of everywhere at once. And that when it uh, when you had an actual fire, like a log of in, on fire in your fireplace, what's happening is that the the wood is like pulling that fire into existence and the fire is like clinging to the wood and feeding on it, on it. But, and the idea of Nirvana, when that fire goes out, it's not because it's extinguished. It's because it's released back into like its real state. Um, now that's, there's something so, to that so, metaphor, but there's also a, there's a whole chapter on the relationship between fire and the fuel of the fire or firewood or whatever. I think, uh, I forget the, the term, but th there's a whole chapter of this text specifically about this. And that is very much one of the issues in the background is like, well, what are you really talking about when you're talking about this kind of extinguishment? And right. I mean, it's, it's all too commonly misunderstood by people as just like extinguishment as like annihilationism, which of course is an incorrect view. And uh, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that that's not what's intended. It's something it's released, like we yes. said before. It's it's freedom, and the reason I even brought all this up because it's not really germane to this to this discussion uh, specifically, so at least not on these two first chapters. But what DK was talking about about this this sort of coming to rest kind of thing, and and also Storm was talking about you know get getting that smack in the face. It's it's a similar sort of concept of like not being compelled to cling to these notions and. You know, when we talk about it this way, it's I think sometimes people think and myself, too, sometimes I think, well, you know, like what's so bad about cleaning these notions? I don't feel like I'm suffering. But then when you actually get that moment of your release, you're like, holy crap, I was really suffering this entire time. You don't even know what it feels like to not suffer. We are profoundly out of touch with reality and with our with like what even just what's happening on like to ourselves on a moment by moment basis. You know, and and I, 
it differs from person to person, and some of us are more so. And, and obviously, you know, I don't want to sound like a hippie, but the hippies aren't complete. They're not wrong when you know there's this kind of rhetoric of like, pay attention to what's happening to you in the moment. Pay attention. You know, it, the 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 hardest thing, but also kind of you know the most important and. It's very simple. It's very difficult, but it's very simple, and it's very important, and it will help you immeasurably, is to notice when you're getting wound up. And you'd be surprised. I mean, maybe you, you think like, oh, I, how could you not know that I'm, you know, I'm getting all flustered or that I'm getting, you, you know, try it or, or ask yourself. Or, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult. But once you do it, once you learn you know, this one weird trick to pay attention, to notice, just notice, you know, what's happening in your psychophysical continuum moment by moment that is like 75 percent of it right there i would say is, is is if you can just be aware of what's happening in your mind in your body moment by moment like there's not a whole lot else to do there's some other stuff but but not a whole lot mara's hate him this indian sage has one weird trick <laughs> yeah pretty much though i mean like it, it's not yeah um, maybe not 70, you know, but maybe 60, but I would say it's at least half and probably more than half. I would also say that there's plenty of people who, as people that are into Buddhism who study this and practice that, and I've seen this, I've seen this in person, that they get it. They they aren't actually wound up in all these things. The thing that's stopping them is that they're attached to the idea that they don't get it, that they don't see it. And so they just create this identity of themselves as someone who doesn't understand these things, even though they know they do. And that's what their last roadblock will be. It's, oh, there's no way I get it, right? There's no way I could understand this. There's a lot of that at play. Because if you could drop all this in a moment, you see. Just putting that out there. There's a lot of mystification. People, people think that, you know, I, I've seen this um, kind of on both sides of, like, there's a certain kind of excessive humility. Not, I wouldn't know if humility, it's a kind of fake humility maybe. But then there's also kind of like an excessive confidence of mystification of like, you know, oh, it's just so profound. It's like, no, it's, 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 it's right in front of you all the time. And, and you know, that can be difficult to kind of really, it's not something that you can wrap your head around conceptually, but that's not to say that you can't understand it. Right. This and, is going to sound, this is going to sound like, sorry, go ahead, Storm. Uh, I was just going to say, there's quite literally nothing else for you to see, That's but, right. su- but suchness, tathata, the dharmata, there's literally nothing else you can see. What else could there be? This is going to sound a little bit like... Everyday mind is the Buddha mind. Do you call it everyday mind? Because there's a similar term in um, in Mahamudra. There's... um. There's, yeah, I mean that's a pretty standard thing in that's certain That's funny. Yeah, we call in, in, in Mahamudra mind. you call it um, ordinary mind. Yeah, that's used as well. It's the same. Yeah. I think it's different Chinese translations of the same original referent. Yeah, but it's just mind but, without. There's no elaboration. There's no. It's just like well, what else? What is there to do? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, I, I don't know. I don't want to get too much into this. I, I um, right. But or uh, you were gonna say something. Well, I was going to say that this this is a this might sound like an, an arrogant or obnoxious story, but it's a true story, so I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, I was uh, out with a grill, and um, we were just talking, getting to know each other, and she asked me, um, and, and Buddhism came up, and um, and she goes, "Oh, that's interesting. You know, um, so wh- why are you a Buddhist?" And 
I, without really thinking, I just said, because I want to become enlightened. And the, I realized at, like upon saying it, that it was true, but I also realized that that kind of thought is very rarely actually formulated so boldly, so directly, you know, uh, even by myself. And again, I'm not trying to brag here, but that's just what came out of my mouth. And the look on her face, she was, she like laughed. She, you know, she didn't laugh in a cruel or, or mocking way or anything. She it just took her by surprise because that's usually not, at least in the West, what the answer is given. You know, it's like, oh, I'm, I think it's a nice philosophy or I think it's, I want to get a little bit more serenity or something like that. Like, no, like, I mean, sure. But also like the point is actually to achieve, achieve the, the destination. Do you know what I mean? Was that I, I like do, totally? I, I do. No, 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 I do. <laughs> and if you're not doing, if you're not doing it for, yeah, I mean like then what, whatever it is that you're doing is not Buddhism. You know, I, I would like, this is my problem with California Dharma in a nutshell really is how many of these people, first of all, how many of them even think that the, the goal is reachable or exists and second of all how many of those very few vanishingly few how many of them are actually trying in what that's not to say you know i do all kinds of shit that's not focused on that every day but I, like the whole point of practice is to set aside at least a little time where i am to the best of my ability making steps in that direction and and very consciously and and deliberately doing that um if you're not doing that you're you're not a Buddhist, and 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 I would even go so far as to say, I mean, again, like, this is why I mean, it get, these things get tough, and I don't want to be too sectarian, but like, when you're talking about Buddhism, like, Buddhism is an English word. It's not a it's not a Sanskrit word. It's not an Asian language word. The closest Asian language word would be Buddha Dharma or just Dharma, which really just means at a certain level reality. Like, what is reality? Well, reality is that. We suffer because we have the causes and conditions for suffering. Reality is that we can remove those causes and no longer suffer. Reality is that our minds are, you know, temporarily defiled in certain ways, but that's not their true nature. We can put our minds in line with their true nature, which is the true nature of reality, and attain, you know, perfect bliss and perfect awakening and benefit limitless beings infinitely, you know, bring bring untold happiness and, and, and just the way the Buddha did, we can attain that exact result and benefit beings that profoundly. It is, it is, that is how we are. That is how things are in reality. And if you doubt it, then you can do all kinds of philosophical investigations or contemplative practices. But if you shouldn't doubt it because there's no reason to doubt it. And, and that's all there is. What else is there to that? And if you want to call that a religion or whatever you want to call that, I don't, I don't, I don't actually care. Like it doesn't and if you, affect if me, you, you know? If you do any of those philosophical investigations, 100% of the time, they're going to terminate in something that Nagarjuna has covered. Yeah. I quite mean, yeah. literally, yeah. quite literally, so many people are like a homeless man sitting on a box of gold and denying that they, they don't, he doesn't know it's like, literally just stop being a faggot and see it. <laughs> I know. I don't know if I can keep this uh, stream on with that, but yeah, I think oh, probably, no, it's fine. Well, don't worry about it. By we'll that, try. I mean a bundle of sticks. Yes. Don't be a bundle of sticks. Um, I think that's probably a good place to end it if you guys had anything else you wanted to say, but but um, that's probably enough for now for, for this um, kind of gentle introduction to uh, to this text. Yeah, I'm good with that. <laughs> Are we going to consider this as having covered chapters one and two? I, I think so, unless there's other... If, do you wanna, if there's something you wanted to get to, we can, we can do it next week, because we're going to be on this for a little bit. I think most of it will continually come up in every chapter, yeah. but I took, I took a bunch of notes... On chapters one and two, like not super thorough notes, but if you're interested, DM me and I'll send them to you. Perfect. That is such a generous thing for you to do. Thank you so much. Um, 
or Nkagi, are you guys good, or was there, or do you want to? There I'm is good. one kind of thing on my mind, I guess. It's like this this metaphor that goes back to the seed and the sprout. I mean, I guess you know you have a pic. I have a picture in my mind of this kind of continuity between the two, and um, it, it just it's very it's deeply counterintuitive when we say that there. I mean, I guess that the takeaway I'm trying to get from this is the distinguishing between the two things. Really, can we say it's simply conceptual constructs that? Uh, that the seed and sprout here are just conceptual constructs in that we can't actually make a distinguishing point between these two things, or is there something more to it beyond that? That's exactly right. The, the point, the distinguishing point is a convention. It, it's not to say that there isn't, in a certain sense, you could say there is no seed, there is no sprout, there is no continuity, and, and it's important to understand that that's true. But that that's, that's yeah, and never, but you could still like plant it and it'll grow you know like it, it doesn't yep. these things are these things are not mutually contradictory the, the point is that when you're looking at a seed growing into a sprout like what what is it that you're actually talking about because again if you drill down moment by moment you know even you know at any individual point in time like where is this like at the, at the time when the sprout exists where is the seed at the time when the seed exists where is the sprout if the sprout doesn't exist when the seed exists and the seed doesn't exist when the sprout exists then what is the basis on which you're positing this relationship fundament what, what is the solid ground that you're saying like ah well the seed caused the sprout what, what, where is that ground what is that ground I, it's kind of quasi rhetorical question, but I don't. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what you could possibly point to. You, I mean, you, you find anything. pure conceptuality. Right, because, that's it. because there's not something there, right? Yeah, you have that's the right. reality as it's apprehended as suchness, and then you have separate from that <laughs> the, the way that we talk about it and conceive yeah. of it, right? Yeah, and there's and, a regularity to it. Like yeah, you, said, you can understand everything is interconnected in the in, in all of existence. So you can either think of it all holistically and get it, or you can try to subdivide it down and get not get it more or less right sure 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 okay um that's good i think i think that's good for now so um until next week we will continue i will figure out uh sort of which chapters and i don't know if we go through the absolutely everything we might that might be good um but maybe we'll just you know pick and choose a bit we'll see um in any case i hope this has been valuable to people and we will see you next week